experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey. And Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. You guys never seem excited at the I beginning know. of the show. I know. It's so awkward, the hey. Hey. <laughs> I just don't know what to do. Just a little loud. I don't know. All right. Hey, hey David. <laughs> We've got a great show for you this week, but first we want to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. Call us at 646-494-3590. We're going to end each episode with your answers to questions we asked the previous week. And this week, you're going to hear from this listener. I'm usually always waiting for the streetlight to change, and I I can just make myself come just standing there. That's coming up later after our interview with Alexa Tsoulis Ray, who writes the Science of Us column, What It's Like. She's covered everything from what it's like to have a micropenis to what it's like to date a horse, and actually several that don't have to do with sexual deformities. Um <laughs> or dysfunctions. Uh, she's going to join us in just a minute. But first, Allison Maureen, um, remember we recently talked about an article called Why I Don't Go Down on Girls, which was published on The Tab by a guy named William Lloyd, who we mercilessly made fun of. We had a hard time figuring out why any straight man would write such a thing, so we got him on the show to explain it to us. So William Lloyd, welcome to Sex Lives. Hi, David. Hello. And say hi to the girls, too. <laughs> oh, hello, Maureen. Allison. <laughs> hi. <laughs> So you heard us talking about your article. Oh, I feel bad. <laughs> um, William, let's start. First of all, what on earth possessed you to announce to the world that you are terrified of going down on women? Why would one write this article? Well, you know, I think we're living through an era of, um, of listicles and sponsored content <laughs> and algorithms and endless... This is a pretty like, high-minded justification. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if you, if you write something, you know, raw and a bit honest and, and slightly vulnerable, um, especially about sex, I think people are appalled and scandalized and, and hopefully, you know, a little bit delighted. Um, you know, I, I wanted to make people dance, basically. I wanted to make them feel something. <laughs> you know, you can, you, can, you can do that by going down on a chick, too, huh? <laughs> I have to say, so wait, the one game changer I found out as we were, I was talking to William before we started rolling, is that the tab, in fact, started as a college newspaper and our... Dear William is only 22 years old, right? Which pretty much explains it all, right? Right, I yeah. Like, how much time, how many, you know, going down experiments have you had yet? Like, at 22, are that many men, like, that experienced and good and liking going down yet? Well, they talk about it as the if world. they are. You know, p- you know, guys my age talk about going down on girls with the confidence and coolness and ah. legitimacy of expert practitioners. And I've always thought, you know, you guys are chatting shit. I guess it's that it's, like, are you a selfish chauvinist, or are you just a vulnerable child? And all of a sudden, I'm switching now that I've heard you and talked to you. I, I hopefully vulnerable child, although that isn't the sexiest thing in the world. Yeah, no, but um, I, I don't think you are the sexiest thing in the world now, right? Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I think what made me realize I was probably uh, a bit wrong was I was getting messages of support from people who look like they're just on the most exceptionally cool terms with the opposite sex. 
Um, and I had this awful vision of being, you know, Carrie Bradshaw for Meninists or Neil Strauss for papery handed <laughs> libertarians. Um, and I didn't really like that. So you are, so, you are thinking that you may be open to... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it was an immensely ther- therapeutic thing to get, you know, rinsed on Jezebel. Ah, um, so they actually convince you. Now you're like, maybe I will go down on a girl now that I've seen the arguments for. I think, yeah, I, I just, I think I should probably be less feeble and juvenile about the whole thing and behave a bit better. Oh, like oh my gosh. I'd love to teach you, William. You came yeah, like, we did it. Enlightened. Congratulations, <laughs> women of the internet. We convinced one random guy in Europe <laughs> to, to go, go down, down on people. On cool. Yay. It was very strange. The whole reaction to it was strange. I remember, and because you have this sort of, when people are talking about you on the internet, there's a compulsion and addiction in just reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came across, uh, I think it was, a, it was a writer like the John Oliver show, you know, 60,000 followers, a blue tick, the clothing of online respectability. <laughs> and he was favoriting tweets about me saying, like, I fucking hate this guy. And I thought, oh, shit, I've kind of fucked this a bit. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, because if we rewind a little, the whole rationale for you about why you wouldn't go down to women was that the first time you, the first and only time you did it, she squirted, it, right? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Which is really just a sign that you did it right, but it was just like a little traumatizing for you because it was kind of intense. You. That might happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I what I did was I went and um, I spoke to a sex expert about it. Oh, did because you? Because I've never. I went to a very Catholic school. A lot of monks running around, and no one really taught us about sex other than to say, you know, do not have sex. So the whole squirting thing. Oh, this is so juvenile. God. Um, Go ahead. I thought I thought she'd like pissed in my face, and I, that's so crude as well. Um, <laughs> and so that kind of just freaked me out a bit. And that was kind of it. Like, that was it for me. That was like full stop. I was like, probably won't do that again. I spoke to the sex expert, and she was like, basically, it was because you stimulated the G spot. Um, and that sometimes happens, and it's definitely not piss. So that was a big moment for me. I was kind of like, okay, well, then what the hell am I worrying about, really? Yeah, you should have felt like a rock star, kind of, maybe. Did you expect me to be quite combative and sort of angry and older? That... Yeah, I was kind of hoping, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, just, <laughs> I just think that what I... I was going for vulnerable and funny, and I think a lot, I think David, in the podcast you did a few weeks ago, David said that uh, I'd written, like, a proud confession, like, you know, this guy hates <laughs> vaginas. Um, and I just couldn't really be further from the case. I was uh-huh. just a bit freaked out once by a vagina, but it, it just doesn't mean I hate them. <laughs> I, t- I take it all back. I, t- I too. He's am really sorry just like for the things I wrote <laughs> about this article on the an exo Jane of young straight men. Yeah, we should give more Williams a platform to voice their vulnerabilities and concerns because look at this teaching moment. Like, yeah, he's back on the on the horse. Do you regret writing the article then? Um, absolutely not. I mean, if you'd allow me to sort of paraphrase uh, Janet Malcolm for a second, um, I think everyone who writes on the internet who isn't really too dumb to notice what's going on, knows that, you know, you're writing to get attention. Uh-huh. You, you want, you do kind of want a reaction. You do kind of want to see people feel something. And especially you want to see them do it in large numbers. And you do kind of want people to hate you a bit. So I don't really regret it. I mean, if I never have sex again, then I probably <laughs> will regret it. But as a piece of writing, I'm quite happy with it. On that note, thanks so much for joining us, William. Yeah. Yeah, people, thank you very much. People can uh, find more of your work at thetab.com. And yes. Yeah. <laughs>
Thanks for getting the plug in, guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> coming up next, we'll speak to the Science of Us's Alexa Sulisray. Now we're joined by Alexa Solis-Ray, who writes the What It's Like column for New York Magazine's Science of Us. Alexa, welcome. Hi. So as I said at the beginning, you've written a lot of stuff uh, not about sex, but the most recent iteration of this long-form interview column was with a guy who elected to be chemically castrated. I think he's like a 58-year-old married man. Before we talk about all the other weird columns, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this dude and how you found him and what you thought of him? Sure. You're already making faces in the studio. <laughs> no, so he was, um, I think he's 62, um, and he lives in Massachusetts. He's married. He got married when he was 18. He'd only ever had sex with his wife. Um, I think they both lost their virginity together. Um, and then when he was 50, he just started seeing prostitutes. Um, it was kind of... Something that he was doing, I mean, obviously he was doing it in secret and he was doing it while he was at work because he didn't want his wife to find out. And it just kind of became sort of an obsession for him. Um, and he decided that he was a sex addict because he just couldn't stop it. And I think the reason that it was a big concern for him, especially was because he was, he wasn't using condoms. He was kind of developing attachments to them. He was spending a lot of money and it was interfering with his work. I think he would leave work for about three or four hours a day to go and meet a prostitute. You know, he had to drive a little bit out of town so he didn't get recognized. It's interesting. I mean, all of these interviews are so intimate. I mean, these people you speak with over many, many hours about the sort of closest details to them that you could possibly imagine. But this guy's was, all he wanted to talk about was his sex addiction. He wanted to go right. into such detail about every, like every single prostitute that he had sex with. Yeah. He was even more interested in that than the fact that he now no longer right. could get an erection. Right. And this is something that actually comes up in a lot of these interviews. Someone who did kind of, you know, settle down early, only ever had one sexual partner. And then, um, you know, I guess we used to call it a midlife crisis, but whatever you want to call it starts dating like or fucking like a teenager when they're in their 50s or their 60s. And I think that's what was going on with him. Um, he obviously, he wasn't having sex with his wife anymore. He was obviously, you know, interested in exploring his sexuality, but for whatever reason, um, he decided that it was because he was sick, not just because he wanted to have sex with other people. I don't think he was being honest with himself, and it was almost as though the only way that he could curb his, his behavior was to make it not an option. So he just had to kind of medicate his body into submission. Usually you hear about this chemical castration in the context of, like, sexual predators. I mean, I yes. think that was yes. the yeah. context I'd heard about it totally. before. Yeah, so it's, um, I think Florida and California mandate it for people who have acted at least twice. I think in Texas they surgically castrate still. But, yeah, it's, wow. to it's, it's associated with being a deviant, mm -hmm. which is why this case is so interesting because I, I mean his behavior he may see it as deviant but really I think he just wanted to explore his sexuality or his life was boring or you know he wasn't getting satisfaction from his wife or you know whatever was going on maybe it was a self-esteem issue but the fact that he would actually go that far is and that, that is, a, is just disturbing. Is it unusual for psychologists to take that type of measure? Like, is it hard to find it? You know, there was yeah. a section in your interview where he's describing yeah. how he goes from therapist to therapist to therapist until he can find somebody who will, right. who will do that. Yes, and that was the thing that was very frustrating about him, and I suppose compared to the rest of the people that I've talked to that have um, would say that they have sexual pathologies, although I don't think he's sick, um, is that they 
this guy just didn't really want to figure out what was going on. He just wanted to fix. You know, he was so controlling. It was as if he didn't he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to be honest with anyone. He didn't want to even think that it might be some personal failing. He wasn't very, you know, sort of open and honest about that. It was as if he was just in complete denial about his sexuality. Or he'd totally brought into this myth that the model for life is that you marry someone when you're 18 and you have sex with them for the rest of your life. So I just found that very disturbing that that is still kind of something that's out there. It just seems so, like, 1940s. I can't really get my is head it around like, it. And how common is it? Like, how many people do elect to have this kind of procedure? So he's unique for sex addiction, which no one has actually classified him as a sex addict. That's how he's decided to label himself. Um, but the psychologist who administers the drug to him... I think she says that about 20%, she has 100 patients, 20% of their voluntary. Um, and they are, the majority of them are people who haven't acted on urges but are scared they will. So men who have sexual attraction to children and may work in a school or a church or, mm-hmm. yeah, a university, that kind of thing. Or who may have, um, she said she had a lot of clients who were, you know, had recently um, remarried and then they had a blended family, so they had stepchildren. So those are men who are kind of admitting to themselves, I have an attraction to children, I really don't want to act on it. Yeah. Um, or, or you men who want, you know, have rape fantasies and they're actually scared or they've gotten to the point where they're close to it. One thing I found, though, um, interesting about all these interviews you do is that you're sort of, you know, drawing this like portrait of what it is to be a human, you know, based on these sort of extremes. And there's always a strange thing where you look at it and... On one hand, like as an outsider, you're like, oh, my God, that's crazy. That's wrong. Well, wait, these people seem to have found a way of life that makes them happy. Like the guy who dates female horses. The horse guy, yeah. And he's like, well, the horses enjoy having orgasms. And you're just like, right. oh, my God, my mind is blowing. Right. I don't know how to deal with <laughs> yeah. what I'm feeling while reading this. That Maybe for thing. listeners that haven't read it, you want to just... <laughs> What Give would your brief summary of this even sure. be? I remember trying to summarize it to people, I and I was like, it can't impossible. be done. Oh, Just no, read 20,000 words. I, I know, it. it's very hard. But like in bullet point, um, he he's always been attracted to horses. He came of age um, looking at uh, horse books, horse picture books, and then he graduated online, started to look at best, bestiality porn. Um, and then when the internet, um, you know, when there started to be Usenet groups and, and bulletin boards, then that's when he actually sort of developed a community and became an active zoophile, which is someone who is attracted. It's like a sexuality. So then he started, he got a mentor who taught him how to have sex with horses. I had only ever heard of people wanting to have sex with horses in the context of like the horse's penis. Right. And I was surprised that this man wanted to just be pleasuring female horses. In fact, unlike William Lloyd, he's like super into going down on horses. Of oral sex. Right. That was his thing. This would be the most intense mentor possible. I was going to say. If they want to talk, he—that's his thing. He loves pleasuring horses, and and that was where. It was. I mean, at this point, it's really just one horse, right? He's like yes. a one horse Ms. man. Miss C. Yeah, I had trouble this... even understanding like how physically that he's like what he stands on a stool and the horse backs up into his face. Yeah, he stands on a bucket. Oh my god! His first experience, he broke the bucket because he was too big. Um, but yeah, he stands up on. <laughs> she backs into him and then <laughs> he goes for it, and he's so. <laughs> I mean, he's. He says that, you know, he'll be in there like two or three hour long marathon oh sessions going down on a horse. And like, that's the main thing that he enjoys to do. He'll masturbate afterwards. He's not really into The two or three hours thing is interesting, too, because at least wild. within like a human context, it's like if you're going for two or three hours, like really, 
That's disastrously <laughs> overlong. That's too long. I feel like there's going to be a Next hospital game. visit, right? <laughs> so is it possible the horse is like not really so into it? Well, the thing is that the horses have big clitorises and they're apparently, they're very slow to orgasm. I love that this is the knowledge that's in your head now. You know, like, these are the facts that you can trot out at dinner right. parties. I know. Well, once I found out what a horse's vagina tasted like, it was... There was oh, yeah. What did he oh. say? Um, it's freshly mown hay and, and grass. Which is like, I would wear that yeah. perfume, so... I mean, it sounds nice. nice. It's very natural. It's lovely. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that um, the thing about... So when he started to talk about about her pleasure and how important that was to him. And, you know, obviously I'm taking him at face value, but, yeah. I mean, I really believe this guy. Um, it, it felt very real to me. His emotions were very, very intense. Um, everything that he could talk to me about to do with animals, there was just nothing I could argue um, when it came to consent and mm-hmm. torture and hurting animals. And it's like, I'm not an animal rights activist at all. I eat meat. I, I would never have sex with an animal. But, you know, when you have someone saying, I mean, it's true. Does anyone ask animals if they want to be killed and eaten? No. Um, and then, you know, even getting into the whole issue of the way that we do treat animals and we really do want to deny their sexuality, it was like, he just blew my mind. Yeah. It was like, yeah. that is true. Yeah, we stop our animals from having se- our pets from having sex lives. We mutilate their genitals. We stop them from reproducing. We don't ever ask them for permission to do that. It's really interesting. I mean, it's yeah. just like, okay. It just makes your like, brain, like, flip. Right. What I find so amazing about when I'm reading the What I Like series, what it's like series, especially <laughs> the one with the horse, I find myself at first being, like, I know somewhat repulsed. And I'm yeah. like, what the, what the fuck? And then, like, by the end of it, I'm like, okay. You know? You can like, get on board. I, yeah. I can get on Or at least horse. I sort of <laughs> get it on I get some it. Level. Or, like, I'm not right. going to judge. It's just something I don't. Which I'm really impressed with yeah. when I read the, or, you know, the, the edited version down. Um, always that how just sort of like cool with it you seem to be yeah. like do you ever have yeah. a hard time keeping it together when people are telling you something no. <laughs> freshly mown hay you know no yeah no no I can handle weirdos yeah but I, <laughs> the one that I was I would be interested to know what you guys thought of it but the the one that the the girl who was in the relationship with her, the sexual relationship with her yeah, father that tough. yeah that was tough that and was that tough. one I feel like. That really did just anger people. So that was a girl who was 19, 18 years old, and she was reunited with her um, birth father who, uh, you know, kind of was out of the scene since she was four, and they entered into a sexual relationship. It's something that happens a lot um, with relatives who are estranged, a lot of adopted parents. I mean, I've personally talked now maybe to about 20 or 25 um, people who are actively in relationships and wow. then then there's a handful more who are, you know have been in them and, and gotten hurt the father daughter ones are definitely the most problematic um, because when it ends the, the girl, you know the daughter loses it all really it's interesting because there is sort of a like feeling when you're an adult and you're having an intense feeling of something for someone you sort of assume it has to be sexual right or right or I think that just the way you displace I don't know the way you express feeling closeness, sort of becomes like that's the closest type of relationship you have when you meet somebody as a grown-up. Absolutely. Grown up. You know, she wants she wants her father and she wants someone who really loves her unconditionally, mm-hmm. which is something that she's never had. Has yeah. doing these interviews changed, I don't know, your outlook on humanity, people, love? <laughs> um, you know, I thought a lot about how your, um, you know, emotions or past history or childhood or, you know, parents, whatever, kind of shape your sexuality. But... It's really interesting to think about just, so, you know, like physical things, like the guy with a micropenis or 
um, you know, maybe you have some terrible body rash which makes having sex difficult or mm-hmm. um, or like the, the woman I spoke with who has vaginismus, you know, where it's, which is so common among women. Yeah. Um, you know, where she just really couldn't have sex because her, her vagina wouldn't let her. And it's those kinds of things. And you know when you know those people and, you know, they're not really having sex or there's just some sort of something hanging over their sexuality and mm-hmm. maybe it's just something to do with their body. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like that's something that I had never really thought about It's remarkable before. the way people adapt also, though. Right. Or how right. sort of flexible things that I assume about, like, the human psyche are. Right. Um, like, I remember one I love was the one of the intersex nudist. Yeah. Which was such a just um, a, a different way of thinking about gender in right. general. Right. And it was how much sort of, like, you, your sort of your physical body can inform the way your brain functions or both. And then I was like, you know, maybe people that, are capable of seeing the world so differently than what I'm used to. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's true. It's like everybody's body kind of shapes mm-hmm. their sexuality in a way. You know, like, you grow up being tall with big breasts I don't know you're mm-hmm. going to sort of develop differently if you have a two inch penis yeah you know or if you have you know balls and breasts like obviously mm-hmm. it's going to yeah affect the, things but yeah the moment in the intersex nudist one that was so heartwarming was like when um wait sorry do I refer to her yeah, as was a she yeah it he or she I can't remember anymore <laughs> she is not precious about pronouns ah she's just like fuck that shit man just like <laughs> people need to be identified like I yeah. this is yeah. not an option for me she's like she's like problematize away but call me what you want not precious but then she's like I loved going skinny dipping <laughs> yeah, with my friends because right. finally I could be out in the open as I was and not worrying what they would think of me if they saw me with my clothes with off with my clothes yeah. off right and I was like my god what a like unbelievably healthy relationship to first to skinny dipping, right. but then to like the fact that you, <laughs> right. yeah, right, yeah, it's and so heartwarming. And then to think that also that's what she or he walks around with all the time is that I, no one knows what's under here, yeah, and that's like a big secret, and that's gonna freak people out, which is the same as what the microvenous guy had, mm-hmm. the woman whose vagina won't work, yeah, or the woman covered in psoriasis. Um, or the morbidly obese blind man, you know, mm-hmm. like hearing him discuss having sex with another blind woman. It's like, man, when you hear the obstacles some people have, it's like, ugh, and you're you like, know. love finds a way. Yeah, love finds. <laughs> That's so reassuring, right? Yeah. Are there subjects you're trying to chase down now, like new? Yeah, what's next? Well, actually, this is interesting. I'm I'm speaking with a woman who has narcolepsy and cataplexy, which is where you just suddenly go limp. But what's interesting about her is she's a um, a beauty queen. Um, and a model. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And so think about all the kinds of things to do with sex this is going to raise. I mean, <laughs> she has to be really careful because she can just yeah. pass out for like 12 hours. And right. she lives in New York. So it's not like she can just go home with a rando. I mean, God knows what's going to happen to her. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. She's like collapsed on runways. and Oh, my goodness. Everything has released from her body oh my my goodness yeah it's interesting to think just how like how every single one of these goes back to sex at some point or another right like you haven't really been able to do i mean it's a sign of how intimate and kind of penetrating so to speak the interviews are (laughs) but like you you never get away from sex anybody with any kind of um trauma or disorder in their life like somehow touches touches on their sex i don't think anything that is isolating in your life you really feel the thing that's different about you when you're in the context of intimacy with another person, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Like, that's Absolutely. when there's nowhere to hide anymore. And you see it reflected in that person. Yeah. It's like, then that's, you kind of, oh, shit, this is how I'm behaving. Yeah, and you're like, well, how how weird is this? How weird right. is it that I can't use my vagina? Now yeah. I'm going to find out because I'm seeing it in relation to someone else. Right. Yeah, and it's like you can do as much exploring or experimentation as you want on your own, but yeah. you really only know once you're, you know, 
It's the context of other people. Like, what's going on? The thing is, you also don't have any sense that this is abnormal until you're in the context of someone else. Like, there's absolutely nothing weird about anyone's body. Right. It's only in the context of other bodies that you can say that one's the outlier or not. Right. In isolation, it's just yourself. Right, right. And that's true. And, I mean, I suppose, you know, when, when you start to think about boundaries and, I mean, I'm not someone who really is all that interested in hearing about the intricacies of having sex. But mm-hmm. um, hearing about how people kind of over, overcome these obstacles is just fascinating. Like, what, like, you know, imagine if your whole entire life, every day you were just thinking about how you were going to get your penis to work. It's like, it's just kind of, yeah. whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's, <laughs> you know, but, th- you know, I mean, I think that that's probably just an extreme example of, you yeah. know, the sorts of insecurities that most people right. have about different body parts. Our guest has been Alexa Tsoulis Wraith. Look for her column, What It's Like, on The Science of Us. Alexa, thanks so much for coming by. Of course. Earlier, we spoke to William Lloyd about refusing to go down on women. And in a previous episode, we asked if you guys had ever encountered someone who refused to do anything sexually. Here's when we heard. Hey, guys. So I was dating this beautiful personal trainer uh, for the D.C. area. It's a long-distance relationship. We've met unmatched, flown out to see each other a few times. Um, It was on one of these visits that um, I really wanted some oral. And... He refused. He straight up refused. I'm not going down on you, he said. Uh, my father told me that eating a woman out is just like eating pork, and eating pork is against my religion. I was so frustrated. I said a terrible thing. I'm not proud of it. I told him, well, I'm glad your dad is dead then. His, uh, his dad had died about a month before that visit. Needless to say, that was the end of that relationship. Well, I was going to say, if it's just like eating pork, who doesn't love a pork chop? The other white meat. But then to then all of a sudden switch to religion, that kicks it to a level I don't even know what to do with. Don't you feel like if you're you're him, if you're in a truly long-distance relationship and you're, like, getting together for the first time, like, involving airplanes, you should probably tell them, like, up front what's going on. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there's, there's a lot of, like, bad behavior here any anytime you have to book a flight to go somewhere to see someone like you need to put everything up front yeah yeah right away because it's expensive and the time suck yeah but then also like almost all that's negated because she said that thing about his dad i would be really mad though if i had just flown any distance i think if i flew a distance and even if it was just that he was going to be like by the way i don't eat pork like when we go to dinner right like i don't expect that to be on the table (laughs) excuse me i thought i was gonna get meatballs on this trip (laughs) look we're doing that thing where we make it radically unsexual again sorry it's our thing um anyway so last week as part of our episode about orgasmic birth and post-orgasm hearing loss we asked if any of you experience orgasms at unexpected or awkward moments hi there um i'm calling in response to um, random weird times that you orgasm. So I've had something happen to me um, <clears throat> where I have, I'm usually always it's when I'm waiting for the street light to change. I live in New York City, so I walk a lot, and I stand there, and I can just make myself come just standing there. 
And But it always only happens whenever I'm waiting for the light to change to cross the street or it's happened when I've been waiting in line at the grocery store. But the common theme I've found is that I've been waiting. And when, I mean, I've never met anyone who's experienced this. And when I've talked to, like, a couple of my friends about it, they understand that I like to be teased in my sexual experiences. So maybe it's like me being teased across the street. I don't know. But I'm just curious if anyone has had similar um, experiences or, you know, because it happens to me, it happens often. And I just, I'm just curious to see if anyone else has the same thing. So thank you. Okay. So this is a totally bizarre leap, except when I have panic attacks, I often have them at moments of waiting as well. There's something about like my brain zoning out. Like it'll be like sitting in a dark movie theater before the movie starts that that's when I always have panic attacks. That sucks. Weird. I know. So I have like the reverse shitty version of what this woman has. Um I would wait in line all the time if I were her, just like lines yeah. I didn't even need to be Although, in. Although <laughs> I'm curious whether it's like weird, embarrassing. Is it a visible? Like, is it obvious that she's having an orgasm? She or seems like relatively kinda... happy with yeah, it and comfortable. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like sort of a happy curiosity. Like, right. I've got a new way to walk. Yeah. yeah. And it's like she gets excited about a red light. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I had it made because I was like, I can read a book in the line at Dwayne Reed. <laughs> I'm having fun. <laughs> well, well if, she, if she's listening, nice. uh, I haven't heard of that, but like you're blessed. I'm kind of jealous of your, your, yeah. your habits. Share your secrets. Really <laughs> interesting, though, the connection to like sort of fetishizing, waiting and teasing and such. Yeah. Well, it's also I get a moment huh. that you're like out of control, you know, that you're Ooh. like um, you're just, yeah, someone else is dictating your life at that moment. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> that was legitimately something I've absolutely never heard of. And now I'm going to, you know. Sublimate your panic attacks. Like yeah. yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I was really excited to like be, it was like, to think it was just going to be like as the light turned yellow or something, that there was something about the color change. Right. So in, I mean, in addition to waiting, if any of you have um, had experiences getting turned on by things that seem weird to be turned on by um, objects or experiences, give us a call and let us know. Uh, 646-494-3590. And that's it for Sex Lives. Thanks to our guests, William Lloyd and Alexa Sulis-Ray. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you next time, and thanks for listening. <laughs>